0: morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, in the one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ.
1: Thanks, Jen. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear God, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity for us to study your word. And God, I pray that as we embark upon a new series this morning, Lord, that you would just open up uh, this book to us, that you would open up these words that are yours and that you would help us to understand them better with our minds, Lord, and even more so with our hearts. God, I pray that you would write your word on our hearts and that we might know that you are here, that you are with us, and that you are working in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Form follows function. Form follows function. This is a a phrase which many of us are familiar with. It's a phrase that was made popular by a 20th century American architect named Louis Sullivan. And the idea behind it, form follows function, and particularly in the realm of architecture, is that a, a building, the, the form of it, should should follow its function in other words the function of the building should dictate the form of the building that may sound rather obvious to us but that's because we're part of the kind of the the movement that flew out of that right and and the idea here is that that the function of something is more important than the form that at the end of the day and and i think this is a particularly american sentiment at the end of the day what matters is what can it do what can it do? Not not what is it, but what can it do? And I, I think the same thing uh, is true not just in the realm of architecture, but even as we approach relationships with other people, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this kind of discussion about, well, well, what are they like? Well, okay, really the question is, well, what do they do? What have they done? What do they do with their lives? It's their actions, not their essence, that ultimately matters to us. We'll let the philosophers debate this whole Thing about essence. And when they can have fun doing that, what we really care about is, okay, but, but what do they do? What, what, what are their actions like? Because that reveals the idea of essence, if there is a such thing as essence. Anyway, which is something philosophers these days debate anyway. But, but, uh, but if there is a such thing as an essence, it's reflected in the actions. And that's really what we care about is what they do. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, 38 years from now, I anticipate that my two-year-old daughter may wish to get married. Um, We've decided that she can't start dating until she's 40. We feel like that's pretty reasonable, trying to be progressive, right, not be too restrictive. But, you know, 40 years from now, you know, she finally we let her out of the cave, out of the dungeon. She's out into the world. Uh, And and, and she wants to get married, right? And, And, of course, as her father, as a parent course, what am I going to be thinking in the next 40 years? And that is that, well, I hope that she finds a good man, right? I hope she finds a good man. But what do I really mean by that? What I really mean by that is I hope that she meets someone who will treat her right. I hope that she will meet someone who will, who will serve her and will consider her thoughts, will listen to her and will seek to, to make her life Better, who will, will be there for her in, in his actions, in the things that he does. I don't I don't care, good man, whatever. Yeah, fine, but, but what does he do? It's his actions that I'm interested in. And I think that the same thing is true as we approach God, particularly as Americans who like to see things in action. We're not really as concerned about who is God. But what does God do? What will God do? Again, we can leave all the discussion about God's essence to the, the theologians. But we want to know, what, what is God actually going to do? I mean, when you find yourself in a situation where a relative or even yourself is going through some sort of unexpected health challenge, uh, okay, it's nice to know who God is, but, but ultimately you want to know, what is he going to do? When you find yourself struggling with the same uh, sins in your life, things that you've, you, you want to get over and, and you want God to help, I mean, okay, it's nice to know who God is, but you, you, in the end you want to know what is he going to do. Today we are beginning a new series on the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians is, is one of uh, the letters. It says right here that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, this is from... From Paul, and this is one of Paul's letters. Uh, he wrote many letters, comprising about half the New Testament. Is comprised of letters uh, from Paul, and this particular letter is is addressed uh, to Ephesus. Um, however, it, it, it seems that he intended for this letter to go not just to Ephesus, but probably to circulate in the area. Ephesus is on the coast of uh, it's on the west coast of what would be modern day Turkey which was called Asia Minor in that day and and it was probably intended for this letter to circulate not just in Ephesus but in various co- communities various churches various cities in the area in other words this letter most scholars agree is probably Paul's most general letter in other words it doesn't seem that he had a specific reason in mind for writing this many of Paul's other letters are what we call occasional letters, that there seems to be a specific reason, a specific occasion for why he's writing to deal with a particular issue in that church. Uh, but it seems that in this letter, there, there really isn't. It's really more of just a general letter. And so in, in some respects, this letter can sort of give us a, a bird's eye view of Paul's theology, Paul's understanding of God and his understanding of Jesus, this would have been written, uh, it's kind of estimated that it would have been written in the late 50s, early 60s, so we're talking uh, somewhere around 25, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, this is sort of the time period in which it was written, and so these, these different uh, communities of faith following Jesus were springing up and we have this one in Ephesus and the surrounding ones to whom Paul is is writing. And what we're going to be doing over, it's really going to be over several months, is we're just going to be going through this letter. And so I would encourage you in your spare time to read this letter and read it over and over and over and over again. I, I, I have found this letter to be probably the most impactful of any of Paul's letters in my life. It's a letter I actually at one point had it memorized uh, back in seminary. I set out to memorize this book. And that had uh, a tremendous impact. I Don't even ask me to try to recite it now. But uh, I did so because I felt like this letter really just has a tremendous amount to offer. So if anybody wants to go for the, the big gold star, you're going to have several months to try to memorize this letter if you want to go for that. But we're just going to be spending the next several months going through this letter. And what we discover here in the first ten verses is that Paul doesn't simply talk about who God is He doesn't simply talk about the essence of God. He actually talks about what God's going to do. He highlights that this is a God of action. This is a God who has a will, who has a purpose. We see this just a a couple of different times in these ten verses. He mentions the will of God. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And then again in verse, uh, let's see, verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. And then in verse 9, and he made known to us the mystery of his will. And then actually in verse 11, which we aren't going to go on to today, we see it again, just one verse after our passage here. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Paul highlights in these first 10 verses that this is a God of action. That he has a plan. That there are things that he has done. There are things that he's doing and there are things that he will do. That there's an overarching plan and actually when we come to the end of this passage we're going to see well what is the big goal? What is this ultimately all about? What is God coming to do? That's, that's We're going to see that. We're going to see what that is. That big plan that he has. But we also see within this that there are sub plans underneath that plan. Right? Uh, if, if you have a uh, something that you uh, you want to do. You've got a, a big plan. You know, maybe you uh, maybe you want to go camping or something like that. And 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 so you have this great plan of, of going camping. Well, there's there's sub plans. Like you you've got to pack your your bags. You've got to make a plan to pack your bag. And and you know you've got to clean the, the dishes that maybe you did, didn't clean from the last camping trip. And so stuff is kind of crusted on there. And you, you know you're like, why didn't I take care of this uh, before? But you got to take care of that, right? You got to make a plan to clean that out. That, in, when, you, when you have a big overarching plan, there are plans underneath this. Uh, I was thinking about this. It's uh, football season, right? Football season is started, and let's just let's just uh, let's just get let's just get this out in the open here, guys, girls. We got to work together on this, okay? Right, um, guys, don't watch football all day. Don't watch it all the time. Don't turn into a slave of football. Uh, and ladies. Let your man watch some football. Like, if we can just kind of figure this out, then it's going to make for a much easier fall. Okay, so football season. If you think about a football team, and I was thinking about this in particular uh, with the Broncos. I don't know why. I, I don't really like the Broncos. But I was thinking about how a couple of years ago, John Elway, the owner of that team, he had a plan. His plan is to win the Super Bowl. Now, hasn't happened yet with this new team, as we know. But that's his plan. That's what he wanted to do. But then there was a sub-plan. He knew he needed to get a quarterback who could help to accomplish this. So so when Peyton Manning was a free agent and all of that, then there was this whole period where that is what John Elway was focused on. That was the sub-plan that he was focused on in order to, that was one of the pieces that leads to the big plan. Okay, you you get the picture. When you have a big plan, there are sub-plans. And I think what we find in this passage is that we're going to see sub-plans of God which ultimately lead, lead up to his ultimate goal. All right, let's look here at the first sort of Sub plan that we have here in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul understood himself to have been called by God, that, that he was part of the plan. And Paul played a pretty significant plan in the unfolding of who God is and the unfolding of God's love and His grace and His mercy. So Paul was a, a part of that plan. We see that in verse 1. Then when we come to verse 3, we see part of the plan which is, very appropriate and for all of us that this pertains to the rest of us verse 3 praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in christ let me read that again praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you catch what that's saying? Paul is saying that the power of heaven itself is available to us. That when we become followers of Jesus, as we seek to be united with him, that the very power of heaven becomes available to us. I I think we... We often think that well what it means to become a Christian is I become a Christian and then when I die I go to heaven. Like that's we tend to think that's the the primary focus there. And of course that's true but but Paul's actually saying, well, it's kind of the other way around. When you become a Christian it's not that you go to heaven when you die, but that heaven comes to you. That the power of heaven is is available now to you and and actually what we find is is that throughout the book of Ephesians, this is one of Paul's letters, probably the letter which articulates this the most. Paul talks about the present availability of the power of God, the power of the Spirit, in the book of Ephesians, probably more than anywhere else. Now, of course, it's not complete. It's not as though though this power that comes from heaven, it comes in its complete and total fullness. There is a not-yet dimension to this. In fact, that not-yet dimension emerges in this very passage, and we'll... We'll get to that. But Paul wants to make it very clear to us that the very power of God is available, the power of the kingdom of heaven. And here he's very much in line with what Jesus says throughout his ministry. We find Jesus going over and over again saying the power of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's like that's what his entire ministry was about, was announcing the power of the kingdom of heaven being here. And I think that has profound implications for us as individuals and as a church. And that is that we should expect things to happen. We should expect God to work in our lives and to work in our church. We, we should expect that. that. That if we have the power of heaven available to us, then we should should live out of that expectation. We shouldn't simply live with, well, I'll just wait till I get to heaven. I mean, that's great, and that's wonderful to focus on. That's not what Paul wants to get at here. But he's saying, no, we should expect that God is going to do things. As we we move into this this fall semester, that would be my prayer for our church, that we would be a church that would just grow in the sense of expectation of what God is going to do. We already see God at work in our church. I think many of us are sensing that, that God is is working in ways that we haven't seen maybe in a while. And and we should should move forward with this incredible expectation that he's he's going to do things in your life, in your marriage, in your heart. That he's going to do things in our church that are going to bring about tremendous change in our church, tremendous change for the good. We should just expect that, not be surprised by that. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, what does this blessing look like? What does this power look like? And I think we actually find then in this passage uh, three dimensions to this heavenly blessing. The first dimension of this is uh, the first dimension of this heavenly blessing is that we are empowered to become holy and blameless. We see this in verse 3. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We see in this that we now have the power to grow in holiness, to, to really change uh, w- what is going on in our lives, to, uh, to, to become uh, that which we've always hoped that we could be, but, but never really saw it happening? I mean, do, do you believe that? When you look at your life and you look at the things that maybe uh, you don't like about yourself or you see yourself struggling with certain things, do you, do, you, do you approach that saying, you know what, there is power available for me to change. There is power that is available to work in my, in my marriage. There is power that is available to work in my heart. And I, I want to ask you, want to ask you this question. What, what would it look like for you to grow in holiness? What would that look like for you? What would it look like for you to grow uh, in your maturity and grow in your walk with God? What, what, what would that look like for you? Right? Maybe Maybe for you growing in, in holiness, maybe for you growing in holiness would be coming to overcome a deep-seated bitterness or anger that is working through your life and has been for many years. And there's just that bitterness and anger that has has been working in there and, and for you to grow in holiness would would begin to overcome that. Maybe for you growing in holiness would be to grow in your in your security in yourself and your security in who you are in Christ, that, that when, when people say things that offend you, that, that sort of puts you down, that it, it doesn't bother you as much. Maybe growing in holiness for you is, is, is overcoming some sort of idol in your life. I, again, I think idolatry really is one way of explaining just about every problem that we have. Those of you who are in the community groups know we, there's a section where we look quite extensively at this idea of idolatry. And, and, and how do you know what an idol is, right? An idol is it's a, false, it's a false god. It's something that you worship. It's something that you look to for life apart from Apart from God, and, and an idol can be anything. It can be a good thing. It's just that that good thing becomes your ultimate thing. And, and I think, how do you know if something has become an idol in your life? I think one of the ways you can discover if something is becoming an idol in your life is when it's taken from you. How angry do you get, right? How angry do you get? I, I mean, maybe you know, maybe it's uh, maybe it's coffee, right? Uh, maybe coffee, right? You're like, yeah, you know, I, I need my coffee each day. And, and if you don't get it, like, you go to Starbucks and they're out of coffee. Like, are you, are you okay? Like, okay, all right, I'll just get some later. Or you, like, you find yourself, like, really angry. You're like, where is this? That, that, that's a sign that it might be idolatry. You know, what is it? It could, it could be anything. It, it could be uh, that you want to watch your, your favorite football team, and their game doesn't come on for some reason because of zoning rights or something like that. That's my problem. You're a Patriots fan. They just don't show Patriots around here. So I think it might be an idol because I'm I'm starting to get angry about the fact that I can't watch any of these games. But how angry do you get if you didn't have it, if it was taken from you? Whatever it is, how frustrated and how angry and how devastated would you be? Maybe growing in holiness for you is coming to downgrade that, downgrade it from being an idol to something that you just like. But it's okay if it's not there. Maybe maybe that's what growing in holiness for you would be. What would would it look like? What would it look like for you to grow in holiness? Paul is telling us that the power of heaven is available to us to grow in holiness, that, that God has come and done this. So that's the first dimension of this spiritual blessing is that we are empowered to live out In holiness, to grow in that, not to become perfect, but to grow, but to grow in that. The second dimension, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. The second dimension of this is that we are adopted into the family of God, predestined to be adopted into the family of God. Now, now just, I know that word predestined, that's making the hairs on the back of your neck stand up for many of us. Okay, I want you, we're going to come back to that here in a minute. But I want us to not focus on that. I want us to see what it is that we are predestined for. And again, what it is that we are predestined for is adoption into the family of God. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to be adopted into the family of God? What does that mean at a practical level? Do we have any Price is Right fans? Anybody? Price is Right? We got a couple. Good. Is it still on? I don't even know. Is that show still even... I, is Bob, Bob Barker? No. Okay. Right. All right. Sorry, that was uncomfortable. All right. Price is right. Okay. It's been a while since I've seen it, but we all remember, right? Well, what happens at the end of the show? They have the showcase showdown, right? The top two contestants, they they are presented with these. They each get their own showcase, and a showcase consists of a package of prizes, right? A, a combination of you know, maybe a trip to Mexico. A new car, uh, maybe a new kitchen, uh, a new set of Craftsman tools. Um, I, I feel like craftsmen had some sort of deal with them. At least every episode I saw, there was always something from craftsmen. Anyway, so so they would have these different uh, these these different showcases that that they would then they would then bid on right and and you would bid on yours, and your contestant would bid on theirs, and whoever got closest to the actual price of the combination of all those prizes would win that showcase. And I think even if you got close enough, you would win both of them, something like that, right? Okay, so you remember what would happen when somebody would win, okay? They would go absolutely nuts, right? I mean, they're, they're just throwing their hands in the air, and they're crying, and they're screaming, and they're hugging, and they're kissing Bob Barker. I, I don't know if you've noticed it, but people on Price is Right are, they're just uninhibited people. I mean, it would be really fun to start a church with a bunch of contestants from the Price is Right. Because every single one of them would open up in small groups. I mean, you'd have no problems. They just wear everything on their sleeves. Anyway, I just, I don't know why I was thinking about that, but a church with Price is Right contestants. Anyway, so they, they go nuts, right? They just get all excited and, and, they're, and they're crying and all this, but here's the thing. They don't just celebrate by themselves. Have you noticed this? That their family members, they come out of the woodworks, they've been sitting in the audience, and they come running up, and they're jumping, and they're screaming, and they're crying, and they're hugging and kissing Bob Barker, and they're just as happy as their family member who won all this. Why Why is that? Because if we're in the same family, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. They're celebrating because that new car that mom won, that, new, that vacation that dad won, it, it's, it's not just his, it's, it's theirs because they're part of the family. Because when you're part of the family, whatever is mine is yours and whatever is yours is mine. So now do you see what it means to be adopted into the family of God? It means that everything that is God's is yours. Everything that is God's is yours. It's never a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. Some of that's now. Some of it's later. There's that tension, as I've said. But at the end of the day, you've got to realize that everything that God has is yours because you're a child of God. Of course, one of the things that I think stands out the most In this picture of being adopted by God, one of the things that we obtain is his name. When you get adopted into someone's family, when you become part of the family, then you take on their name, you adopt their name, you adopt their identity. I remember George W. Bush, when he got back into politics in the early 90s, he actually got involved earlier, I think, and it didn't go very well for him, but In the early 90s, he got back into politics, and when he got back into politics, he had a very distinct advantage over his competition, and that is that his father was the president of the United States. And so when he ran for governor of Texas, and then ultimately when he ran for president himself, he carried the name Bush. He carried that. And so... He carried that status and that reputation. And so in many respects, he got elected to office as much because of the accomplishments of his father as anything that he did. Because he simply carried that name. You see, when you're adopted into the family of God, you take on the very name of God. You take on his very status, his very reputation. How many of us spend so much of our lives trying to make a name for ourselves? How many of us in, in our careers try to make a name for ourselves? How many of us, uh, even even in, in like raising a family or, or whatever it is that you do, you, you want to make a name for yourself. You want people to think that you're an incredible mother or you're an incredible wife or you're an incredible baker or you're an incredible preacher or you're incredible. I mean, how many of us, we, we spend our entire lives trying to make a name for ourselves. And what this is telling us, wait a minute, you have the name of God. Your status, your worth, and your reputation, I mean, that's pathetic to try to make your own name when you have the name of God. Praise be to God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You see, the first blessing is that we were chosen to be holy and blameless, that we have the power to grow in holiness, and that we should expect that to take place. Secondly, we were predestined to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And then third, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We have been redeemed. We have received We have received forgiveness. You see, what this is pointing at is the fact that none of us deserve to be a child of God. None of us deserve to have the name of God. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells this parable, and many of you know it well. There is this young, the younger son, there's two sons. There's the older son, younger son, and then the father. And the younger son rebels against the family, rebels against his father, and in, in fact says, you know, give me your money now, even though you're not dead. But usually you don't get the inheritance until they die. That's usually how it works. But he says, I want it now, which is essentially saying, I wish you were dead, father. He's saying, I don't, I don't want to be a part of this family. I distance myself from this. So he goes off, he rebels, says, I don't want to be a, a, a child of you anymore. Of course, what happens? He squanders all of it, and then he comes back, and he realizes, he understands. He says, "He says, Father, take me back, not as your son, but as your servant, because I don't deserve to be your child anymore." Of course, that parable really is a parable that speaks to humanity itself—that we all have turned away from God. That's what the story of Adam and Eve is all about. The humanity has turned away and said. You know, we don't really want to be a part of your family anymore. God, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. I want to make a name for myself. I don't really want to have anything to do with you. And, of course, what it means to be a Christian at the very core of what it means to be a Christian at the base of that is to come before God and realize, boy, I do not deserve to be your child. I do not deserve to be a part of your family. Of course, what happens in the parable, the father welcomes him back says, No, no, slay the fattened calf. Get him my my best robe because my son has returned. He instantly returns him, recognizes him as his son, brings him back into his family. He forgives him of that. And of course, in that parable, what we see is that forgiveness requires a cost. There is a cost to that kind of forgiveness. Think about this. The, The son comes back. He slays the fattened calf. Spends a ton of money, goes all out for this party, right? And welcomes back in, which basically saying, okay, you can be a part of this. You can use all of these resources. You can go back to, to you know, being a part of all of this. And, and so, but this is going to cost the estate, right? But here's what we need to realize. Who is really, uh, who's really going to lose out on all of this? And the answer is, of course, the older brother. Because as the story goes, uh, the younger brother has already been given his inheritance, which means that everything else, everything else in the estate now, ultimately will go to the other brother. So if the father starts giving the younger brother you know, the, the, the inheritance, well, that's actually coming out of the elder brother's inheritance. So it's the elder brother who is really suffering. Of course, why does Jesus tell this parable? Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is that he is the elder brother. That Jesus is the one, he is the son of the father who is willing to give himself, willing to give his life to welcome us back into the family of God. That on the cross, he died, he, he gave up his own inheritance so that we could be welcomed back into the inheritance of the father. Forgiveness requires a cost and it required the blood of Jesus the very heart of christianity is that no matter how far you have turned from god no matter how far you have wandered if you will simply come back if you will simply come back like the prodigal son and say i do not even des- i do not deserve to be your child he welcomes you back and forgives you and reinstates you as his child again what this is pointing to is the reality that none of us deserve to be a child of God. None of us deserve to receive these blessings. And this is actually what Paul is getting at when he uses the language of being chosen and being predestined. <clears throat> we need to see this because the word predestination gets us all, all out of sorts. But we need to realize what Paul is, all he's really trying to say here, what, what he's saying is that your status before God, your status as a child of God has nothing to do with anything that you 've done i mean he he chose you before you did anything he loved you before before you did anything it had nothing to do with 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 who you are or what what you did, he, he decided before you were even born, he decided that he loved you and that he was, going to, he was going to come for you and that he was going to rescue you. He's simply trying to say it has nothing to do, well, what you have done has everything to do with the grace and the mercy of God. And, and, and think, about, think about how comforting this is. And This is supposed to be, the, the, the doctrine of predestination is supposed to be something that's very comforting. Because you're able to to, to say to yourself, you know, I think what a lot of us try to do is we try to cover up our sin. Try to just, you know, hopefully nobody saw that. Hopefully God didn't see it. And here's the reality. God saw that sin before he created the world. It's not like he just saw it, not like he's even caught off guard. He saw that you were going to enter into that sinfulness before he even created the world. He's known about this from all of eternity that you're going to do that, and yet he has still chosen to love you and to forgive you. From the foundation of the world, he he chose us to be called and to become holy and blameless in his sight. That means that whatever it is that you're struggling with, and you're like, I just don't know if I could ever overcome this. I don't know if I could ever see growth in this area. What this is telling us is that God has been planning on working in your life from the beginning of the creation of the world. He's known about that struggle in your life, and he has been planning to work in you and help you with that since the beginning of time. You see, that, that's, that's what he's getting at when he talks about predestination. We're going to touch on this a little bit more. We see these three dimensions of the spiritual blessing that God has given us. In Christ Jesus. And we, we see that he has created us or chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He's, he's chosen us to be able to grow in holiness. That's one dimension of this spiritual blessing. He's called us to be adopted into the family of God, to reinstate us as sons and daughters of God. And then, of course, what has made this all possible is that he has forgiven us. He's forgiven us of our sin. So we see that that's what this spiritual blessing is all about. But remember what I said at the very beginning. This is just a piece of a bigger plan. But even in this passage, we see that as as we're called according to his will to this, that there's a a bigger will, a, a bigger purpose. And he actually clues us into this in verse... Nine, I guess you might say there's a fourth dimension to the spiritual blessing, and that fourth dimension is that he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. And So he's clued us in to what this ultimate purpose, this ultimate goal is. We find it right here in verse 10. is to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. You see that? God's plan is to bring all things, everything that you see, all of creation, to bring it all under the control of Jesus, to redeem and to restore, to reconcile all things. Today we're beginning this new series, which we're calling, apparently we're calling it Econciliation, but it's really called Reconciliation, And what we're going to be looking at is that throughout the book of Ephesians, it's all about how God has come to reconcile all things, earth and heaven to bring it together, heaven and earth to be united, and to to take back everything that has been taken from him. And and that begins with us, right? This is is what it's saying, the spiritual blessing, is that this, this reconciliation begins with us to renew and to restore us, but that's just a piece of it, and then that points to something which we're going to see as we move through the book of Ephesians, and that is that we are called to be further agents of reconciliation. But what it means to be called, what it means to be chosen, what it means to be predestined, is not just that we are chosen ourselves to be restored and renewed, but we are called actually to go out and to be his agents of renewal and reconciliation in this world. And this really helps us to understand uh, the mystery of predestination. Because listen to what that's saying. What it's saying is this. You were chosen to go out and invite others to become part of the chosen people of God. Do you see that? What it means to be chosen is not, is not to start reflecting on, well, chosen versus those who aren't chosen. That's the kind of speculation that Paul is... He's not saying that's how we should approach this. It's not, it's not me being chosen over and against others who aren't chosen. He, he, That's not what it means to reflect upon this. He's saying what it means to be chosen now is that then you go out and you invite other people to become a part of the chosen people of God. Now, if you see a mystery in that, you're absolutely right. What do you mean? I'm chosen to go out and invite others to become part of the chosen people of God? If you see a mystery in that, you're absolutely right. And it's a mystery which leads Paul... at the end of chapter 11 of the book of Romans, after a lengthy discussion of this whole issue of predestination and election, in the end, all he can do is throw his hands up and worship God and his glory for the mystery of his will. Yeah, it's a mystery, and we're not to be distracted by that. What we're, we're called to do then is to see what it means to be chosen by God, is to go out and to be his agents of reconciliation in this world, because his ultimate purpose is to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head. This past Thursday, I had the opportunity to speak at the 9-11 Remembrance Service in Rivervale here. They've asked me to be a part of it before, asked me to pray several times. This time they actually let me speak. I'm like, okay, all right. And I was very excited to be a, a, a part of that. But when you come to a service like that, a Remembrance Service for Of course, when we reflect on 9-11, there are, of course, many many things that come to mind, many questions that come to mind. But, of course, one of the central questions, particularly as a Christian, and particularly as a Christian minister, helping people who are coping with something like that, is, of course, this big question, and that is, of course, why did God allow 9-11 to happen? Indeed, why does God allow any sort of tragedy to take place we look at even today we look at the horrors that are taking place in iraq right now and in other places around the world and this question just it just you know continues to bubble up why why does god allow this sort of thing to happen and so i tried to address this question at the remembrance service on thursday and and i said there are two parts to a christian answer two parts to a christian answer to this question and the first part of it is is simply this why Why does God allow this sort of thing to happen? And and the first part of a Christian answer to that is it's not really so much an answer as it is a unique source of comfort. And that's simply this, that, that we may not know why God allows these kinds of things to happen, but we do know that he understands what it is that we're going through. The part of the uniqueness of the God of the scriptures, is that we find a God who identifies with his people, a God who identifies with the suffering of his people. And, of course, that comes to its, its greatest fruition in Jesus, when God himself comes into this world and himself endures the pain and suffering of this world on the cross. That, that in that, even though we, 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 we may not know why, and, and so we may still justifiably shake our fist at heaven and say, Why, God, why? That, we may do that. In fact, the book of Psalms is filled with this kind of pleading. We may justifiably shake our fist at heaven and say, Why, God, why? But the one thing that we cannot say is, God, you don't understand. Because no matter what we are facing, we know that he understands. He has been there. He understands what it means to suffer. That's the first part. It's the first part of a Christian answer to this question of of why God allows these things to happen. The second part of an answer to this question I think is best understood when the question is slightly rephrased. The original question is, why does God allow this sort of thing to happen? can also be rephrased as, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't God do something about it? And I want to close by just reading to you what I shared with the group at the 9-11 service this past Thursday. The truly shocking answer to this question, the answer that goes beyond mere sentimentality and emotionalism and requires an opening of the mind that modern rationalism finds impossible, is that he will do something. Both the Hebrew and New Testament scriptures speak of the resurrection, that God will one day overturn death itself. For Christians, this is seen as having been historically anticipated 2,000 years ago, when one particularly obstinate individual refused to stay dead after the Romans had killed him. His resurrection anticipated that to which the whole of the scriptures had all along been pointing, that God will have the final word. If this is true, then the answer is yes to the remarkable question that Sam asks Gandalf at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What God is revealing to us in this passage, what Paul is saying to us, is that God will have the final word on injustice God will have the final word on tragedy. God will have the final word on death. God will bring about shalom. God will bring about reconciliation. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for this amazing truth. That you will have the final word Lord, you will have the final word on our own struggles. You will have the final word on our own pain and suffering. Lord, you will have the final word on the injustices which we face. God, we pray that as we leave this place, God, we would be filled with the knowledge of the mystery of your will that you will make all things right. Lord, help us to live out of that reality. Help us to step out in faith. Help us to trust in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.